Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. On today's podcast, get ready to take up and read. In the next couple of podcasts, Ken discusses his apologetics books and why he wrote them. And Ken, uh, first of all, uh, Thank you for writing your books. You've mentioned them a number of times, but we're going to take some time in the next couple of podcasts and then in a couple more later. Uh, so give us a kind of a an idea of what uh, we can look forward to. Yes. Uh, well, I wanted to take a little time and talk a little bit about uh, some of the apologetic books that I read and some of the conclusions I've come to over the years about what I think is important in terms of the Christian faith, how I think it needs to be defended in specific ways. So this first show is going to look at some of my earlier books, as, as well as what I think is my signature book. And then we'll do another program. And as you mentioned, uh, we're going to come back to this topic. So if you have not read much by me, uh, this will give you a little uh, taste. And of course, Joe, you have edited most of my books. So I'm interested in what you think about this as well. Wonderful. All right, Ken. Well, uh, since uh, you've written a lot, <laughs> you've, you've had a long writing career, and some people may not be aware of a couple of your early books. So that might be a good place to start. Tell us the name of your first book, when you wrote it, and what was the uh, context at the time of the writing of the first book? Yeah, my first book came out in 1992. I wrote it with uh, one of my colleagues at the Christian Research Institute. Uh, long before I came to RTB, my first professional apologetics work was working with Walter Martin at the Christian Research Institute called CRI. And I worked there from... 1987, I think, through 1993, so almost seven years um, after Walter died. And Walter, in my view, was maybe one of the few people that could ever have done a program like that, the Bible Answer Man. I always, I always felt insecure on a program like that because think of how much information there is to, to know and to learn about the Bible. But Walter, he would sit in his office and just his Bible in front of him and answer questions. And I was always uh, amazed by that. And Walter had a big influence on me, uh, Joe. I I saw him as a, as a mentor, uh, you know, in some ways as a father figure. And I think it's possible that Walter doesn't get enough credit for his influence on people who would come after him. I mean, he really uh, had an extraordinary apologetics career himself, wrote books like The Kingdom of the Cults and uh, made The Bible Answer Man a very enjoyable program, an engaging program. But there have been a lot of people who went into um, studying alternative religions, counter cults, if you will, specifically because of Walter Martin. And I... Uh, after Walter's death, Craig Hawkins was the host of the program. Uh, then uh, myself and Rob Bowman and Ron Rhodes and Paul Carden kind of did a panel. Uh, and then Hank Hanegraaff, of course, took the program after that. But 
my first book was entitled The Cult of the Virgin. The uh, subtitle is Catholic Mariology and the Apparitions of Mary. And I wrote that with Elliot Miller, who was the longtime editor of the, um, the Christian Research Journal. Uh, that journal is still going today. Uh, recently, Fuzz authored an article on it uh, with regard to uh, William Lane Craig's view of Adam and Eve, for example. So this book came out in 1992. Um, there's a lot of really nice things, I think, ab about the book. Uh, one, it was dedicated to Walter Martin. I was very happy to, uh, to remember doing that. And I want to read that dedication. Uh, I think Elliot uh, penned this, but I completely agree. He says, this book is fondly dedicated to the memory of Walter Martin, founder of the Christian Research Institute. It was he who first modeled for us a balanced approach to Roman Catholicism. He freely acknowledged that there are many true Christians and much that is orthodox within the Catholic Church, but he did not gloss over the serious differences that remain between Catholics and Protestants. And I think that's exactly right. I, I really appreciate Walter. It's easy to kind of think he must have been a cult buster, you know, a heresy hunter, always wanting to put uh, a group he disagreed with, you know, outside the Christian camp. But that really was not Walter Martin. Um, Walter really labored with particular groups like Roman Catholicism, like Seventh-day Adventism that have, you know, kind of a, a core Orthodox foundation. But then there are, you know, kind of these intractable differences. And um, I also liked it that the foreword was written by Norman Geisler, another very important person in my life. Uh, Geisler was definitely a person who engaged me with philosophy uh, and kind of taught me the life of the mind. So I was I'm very pleased that we did that. And I, I think one of the things that really uh, I'm happy about, Joe, is that um, I went to Elliot when we were finishing up the book and I said, you know, what do you think about the idea of having a, a Catholic scholar respond to the book within its pages? And I remember Elliot thought, you know, he had a bad look on his face, like, what in the mm. world are you talking about? And I said, look, we don't have anything to hide. You know, what do we got to lose? We, we've tried to be very careful. We've tried to be candid. Um, you know, what, what do you think about me inviting a Jesuit scholar, Mitchell Pacwa, to write a seven-page response? And uh, we decided that it was a good idea, and Mitch did that. Mitch, uh, I'll bet some of our listeners know that Father Pacwa is on is one of the anchors for the EWT uh, Catholic Network that uh, airs widely in in America. Mitch is a brilliant guy. I think he spent thirteen years in seminary. I mean, just an amazing uh, scholar, and of course, very devout dedicated to his Catholic views. Um, and so we went back and forth on that. And, uh, you know, this morning when I was looking at the book and picked it up off my shelf, I also uh, appreciated that in that book, there are some interviews that I did with the um, people who claim to see apparitions of Mary in a little 
city in the former Yugoslavia called Medjugorje. So you can you can pick up and read my questions of them. And I've actually um, had scholars contact me about this. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, one of our friends of RTB, who is a in our in the scholar community, Travis Campbell, my first interaction with him was about this particular topic that uh, some people in looking at the resurrection have said, well, couldn't the resurrection be something like an apparition? And uh, they interacted with with my book. So some good memories about that book. It's it's unfortunately out of print. Amazon does have some copies of it uh, available. Wonderful. Uh, what uh, should we take away from that book? Those who want to know uh, more about it, what you wrote in there. You mentioned the interviews, but... What, what is kind of like the bottom line there? Yeah, I appreciate that question, Joe. I, you know, I, I think that the differences within Christendom, um, you know, they may prove to be intractable. Uh, if you think of Orthodoxy, Catholicism, and Protestantism, the three broad branches of Christendom, and obviously Christianity is the largest religion in the world, more than 2.2 billion uh, Catholics are the largest uh, branch of Christendom, actually larger than both Protestantism and Orthodoxy combined, about 1.3 billion. I think uh, there's a couple things that come to my mind. Uh, one is maybe the differences between the branches of Christendom, maybe they're unresolvable. I don't know. Uh, the issue of authority, church tradition, scripture, the magisterium of the church, the question of justification by faith. Uh, and then I, I think maybe a third issue that is really at the center does relate to devotion to uh, the Virgin. And of course, the Catholic Church is very careful to say that they give worship, uh, Latin term latria, only to God. The saints get hyperdulia, which is uh, dulia, which is honor, and then Mary is to receive hyperdulia or special honor, if you will. I think, uh, I, I think, Joe, that one of the things that concerns me, and of course I'm, you know, who am I to uh, critique the, the Roman Catholic Church? Uh, Yaroslav Pelikan in one of his books said he thought the Roman Catholic Church was the most formidable religious institution in the history of the world. And um, there's a lot I respect in the church. Uh, many of the thinkers that I admire uh, have been Catholic, St. Augustine, Blaise Pascal, Thomas Aquinas. I, I would say this, however, I, I am greatly concerned. Uh, I don't think the Catholic church has, has done enough to police its ranks. That is, if you go to South America, you go to Mexico, um, go to parts of Asia, now, this careful distinction of, you know, we only worship God, we only give Mary extreme honor, um, I, I think that's missed on millions of people. And I think, unfortunately, there are many Catholics, maybe through no fault of their own, I don't know, uh, but I think they engage in what is idolatry. Um, so... You know that remains a that remains a I think a very important issue and 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 again I I think that there are many Catholics who are genuinely Christian, 
Uh, some people think that Catholics and Protestants have made some headway about the issue of justification. That's, of course, hotly debated. And I might say that I think the most criticism I have ever received on any issue was in basically arguing that Catholicism was not a cult. And by the word cult there, I mean that it was not non-Christian, outside the Christian camp. Um, it, it didn't mean that I didn't have differences with the Catholic Church, but there was a lot of pushback. And as you know, having grown up Catholic and have having worked in the apologetic field yourself, um, that's still a real tension between Protestants and Catholics. I hope that the Catholic Church would do more uh, to, to educate its people, particularly, uh, again, in third world countries. So did you find these apparitions to have some kind of explanation, since that's in the subtitle, Apparitions of Mary? What is meant by that? Yeah, that's right. Um, Elliot Miller did the first part of the book, which looks at Catholic Mariology, the, the doctrines, the dogmas, the Immaculate Conception, etc., I, in the second part of the book, looked at various apparitions at Guadalupe, at Lourdes, and particularly at Medjugorje. I actually went there uh, for a couple of weeks and interviewed many people. Um, it's it's difficult to, I think, assess the whole thing. Um, you know, were they, did they have, uh, you know, was this part of their own human imagination? Or were they having spiritual issues? One thing that really disturbed me was that, according to one of the visionaries or the seers, uh, the Virgin had recommended a book, Poem of the Man God, which is a book that the Catholic Church had actually condemned uh, as an occult book. And when I heard that, all of my alarms, red flags went up. So I write a little bit about that. And uh, I remember talking with one of the Roman Catholic priests. He was actually the counsel to these young people. Um, he was German uh, in, in background and knew a lot of theology and philosophy and psychology. And, we, you know, we talked about these various issues. I should say the Catholic Church has never granted its imprimatur, if you will, on Medjugorje uh, and even the local bishop had serious questions. So if that's something you're interested in, our little book, uh, The Cult of the Virgin, is still has some copies around here and there. All right. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Uh, another early one that people may not be aware of uh, is called Prophets of the Apocalypse, David Koresh and Other American Messiahs, if I got that right. Tell us about that one, Ken. Yeah, this is a book I also participated as, as one of the authors uh, during my days at RTB. In fact, that I think this book came out right as I uh, had left uh, the Christian Research Institute. Uh, and of course, many people remember the standoff between the FBI and the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas uh, in 1993. I mean, that played out on television. I remember being at RTB when the fire was started uh, that that killed many people. Uh, there was a major shootout, 51-day uh, standoff, and uh, 
not too long ago, a couple of years ago, a, uh, a Christian group was making a film about various cults and they came to RTB and interviewed me uh, largely based upon my participation in this book. So what, what's interesting, there were four of us and um, I think that my friend uh, Erwin de Castro, he he not only authored a chapter or so, but he did some of the editing on the book. Uh, Richard Abanis, who is a cult researcher as well, he did some of the field work. Uh, one of the things I like about this book is that there are interviews with people that were part of the Branch Davidian community. In fact, uh, one of the wives of David Koresh, he had multiple wives, uh, is interviewed. So you get kind of, uh, uh, and, I, and I appreciate this, I think there was kind of investigative journalism going on. And um, I wrote a a particular chapter. Uh, it's chapter six in the book. And I kind of spelled out uh, David Koresh's uh, roots, if you will. David Koresh grew up a Seventh-day Adventist. And so part of the reason I was interested in this topic is that at CRI, um, a good part of my duties was looking at issues relating to Roman Catholicism and then also Seventh-day Adventism. So I've written articles in um, Christianity Today, the Christian Research Journal. Uh, in fact, I, I think the most extensive uh, research I've ever done on a topic is probably on Seventh-day Adventism. I have interviewed dozens uh, of their finest scholars. I've spoken at their seminary. I've spoken at a couple uh, colleges here in Southern California. Um, Riverside, where I live, has had a long history of uh, Seventh-day Adventists. And so David Koresh had a, a Adventist background. So in this chapter, I kind of spell out the origins of Seventh-day Adventism, all the way back to the William Miller movement in the 19th century. William Miller was a New England Baptist minister who predicted the second coming in October 22nd, I believe, 1844. And they said the, the day came, but the Lord didn't. Well, that was something that, that I've always had very strong interest in. And interestingly enough, Joe, um, you know that I had a Catholic background. My parents uh, who, who grew up in West Virginia, a uh, very rural and poor state in those days. My dad was a coal miner. Um, before they became Catholic in the early 60s, which is something that they did when they moved to Los Angeles, I was baptized as a four-year-old uh, at St. Athanasius Catholic Church. Uh, I love St. Athanasius. He's one of my great heroes. But my parents, by the way, were... Um, they were part of the Christian Advent Church. Now, that's not Seventh-day Adventist, but it has connections. So I thought it was interesting that my time at CRI kind of related to, you know, my family background. Uh, how do we think about the Seventh-day Adventists? How do we think about uh, Roman Catholicism? And, you know, this book is unfortunately out of print, and I say unfortunately because I think it's held up pretty well. I, I think the content uh, is is really solid. Mm. Uh, Ken, for people who 
wonder how this can happen. How could there be a David Koresh? Uh, it wasn't long ago we had other movements like this. I think I remember one that was called Heaven's Gate, I think. Um, yes. then there was the, the really large number of people who died in the Jim Jones group. I think that was called People's Temple, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So how, how does this happen? I mean, um, and, and can that happen today? What do you think? Yeah, I, I think it can happen today. In fact, I wanted to read the dedication in our book, Prophets of the Apocalypse. It says, this book is dedicated to the Davidian children who died on April 19, 1993, and to their young playmates who were released early on in the siege. For those who perished, may their innocence never be forgotten. For those who now face an uncertain future in a world they've been taught to fear, May their emotional, spiritual, and psychological wounds soon be healed. You know, you, you've you've really struck a, a very important point, Joe, that, uh, you know, studying religion is not just an academic discipline. Uh, these, these religions have real human beings as, as part of them. And people are involved in cults. Uh, the cult group uh, Jim Jones um, more than 900 people committed suicide. That's that's where, by the way, we get that expression, drinking the Kool-Aid. Uh, the grape Kool-Aid mixed with Sinai killed more than 900 people. Mm. Cults can be dangerous, uh, physically dangerous. Uh, they, they can negatively influence people's souls, but also their psyche, their, their mental uh, life. Um, and, and of course, these questions, I think, are very significant. And, and I would say that in my own growth in Christianity, very quickly, I realized that apologetics was important uh, because, you know, somebody knock on my door and it was a Jehovah's Witness or a, a Latter-day Saint, or I would go to uh, uh, the airport and Harry Krishna wanted to sell me flowers. And I thought, wow. Uh, everybody's view of Jesus can't be correct. And cults can happen. Uh, they, they're they still groups. Uh, in fact, in the next book, I'll tell you about that particular group I wrote about, Heaven's Gate, that believed there was a craft af uh, following the Hillbop Comet, uh, and people there took barbiturates and died. So uh, this is a very important field, and, and I, I think that Christians have to take seriously the alternative religions, and that, that's, I, that's been something I have brought to reasons to believe. Obviously, um, you know, coming from CRI, some of these interests have really never gone away, and, and so some of the work I did at CRI, I've continued to do here at Reasons to Believe. Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, the next book on our list is kind of related to this whole idea of uh, people uh, with odd ideas and even cultic um, when it comes to have we been visited from beings from outside uh, our solar system or, or somewhere outside our, our atmosphere. Tell us about the next book. Yeah, this, of course, is the first book that I did uh, as a scholar here at Reasons to Believe, it's entitled, pretty fame, pretty interesting title, Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men, 
subtitle, A Rational Christian Look at UFOs and Extraterrestrials. It came out in 2002. And I, one of the things I really like about this book, and, and again, it's more than 20 years old, um, still a lot of interest in it. Uh, you can get it as an ebook, I believe, at Amazon. And uh, lots of people have asked us, hey, when are you going to revise it, put out something uh, new? But what I like most about it, I think, Joe, is I think you've got three very qualified authors all writing in areas of their strength. I mean, Hugh Ross is an astronomer, and he has spent a lot of time thinking about the, the solar system, the universe. Is it possible for crafts to traverse these billions of miles to get here to planet Earth? He knows about the difficulties of things like that. Uh, and of course, he's followed uh, SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, I mean, Hugh actually spent time as an astronomer looking through these telescopes. Uh, Dave Rogstad as well, uh, another connection to RTB. I, uh, my forte in this book is looking at UFO cult groups. So I had a cult researcher background. I, and I had actually, prior to this, uh, began writing a book about UFOs. Um, Alan Gomes, who was one of my professors, a theologian at Talbot School of Theology, he'd done a series of books on cults, again, influenced by Walter Martin. And uh, he had recruited me and uh, Kevin Lewis, another theologian, uh, apologist at, at Biola. Uh, and that kind of fell through. We weren't able to kind of get it uh, done. But when I came to RTB, I had a lot already written about UFO groups and what I thought about them. Then our third author, and I really appreciate uh, Mark uh, Clark, who is a real specialist on national security. I mean, he really understands uh, the military. He understands uh, what's going on in terms of, uh, you know, the military being secret about this or that. So I, I think that this has been a, a, a really good book. Um, I, I will tell you that uh, I am not, uh, I don't talk a lot about spiritual warfare. Um, I kind of agree with C.S. Lewis that probably the demons are, are equally interested in two approaches. One, you ignore them, or two, you become fascinated with them. I think too many evangelicals are fascinated with them, but I, I would say my tradition, we tend to ignore them, which is not always a good thing. But I'll say this, uh, when I wrote that book with uh, Hugh and with Mark, I felt spiritually oppressed uh, in a real way. Now, now, granted, I was reading a lot of occult literature because I was trying to figure out what do these people in UFO cults believe? And Joe, all, all of the major UFO cults, um, you know, and and I mentioned a number of them here in the book, but all of them are rooted in occult religion. Their so-called revelations comes out of the occult. So I, I was very glad to be done with that book and move it mm -hmm. on and move those books outside of my home. Um, uh, but it, it is a it's a weird world, a strange world, but it's one in which people have great interest. 
as we've seen over the last year, where the United States has said, hey, we may know more about UFOs. And so this remains a, a provocative topic. Yes, it does come up in the news uh, quite a bit. In recent months, there have been uh, hearings before and so on. It just seems our human psyche is such that uh, we miss the God of the Bible, uh, our rebellion in Rome, where we, we we know God exists. We we're chasing gods or other ways to uh, figure how things are, and uh, we get in trouble when we get away from the God of the Bible. It seems. Well, that's exactly right. Um, there are people who, you know, ask me on the college campus, um, you know, what about life in outer space? Um, how would that relate to Jesus? Would would these civilizations be fallen? Would Jesus have to be, uh, you know, travel to these other worlds to perform an atonement? So these topics are, I think, are quite relevant, and and obviously, you know, the advancements. We know that there are there are uh, solar planet extrasolar planets. Could they house life? So this little volume uh, it it gives you a lot. It tells you a lot about uh, science and astronomy and and extraterrestrial life. It tells you about things like so-called conspiracies, and it looks pretty carefully at uh, various UFO religions. So. Yeah, that was uh, that was my first RTB book, and uh, I think it's probably gotten more reviews than any book that I've ever been associated with. And so I think that indicates, Joe, it remains a, a topic of interest. And in fact, uh, you've had some exciting news that uh, people around the globe have now received this book in their language. So tell us about it. Yeah, I think that uh, I think that my book, without a doubt, uh, the subtitle is "Answering the Twenty Toughest Faith Questions." I think this is clearly my my signature book. Um, it's been the most popular uh, book. Uh, it was published in two thousand four, so this will be the twentieth year. Uh, and and Joe, by the way, books don't always stay in print. They go out of print. I mentioned that the first two books I wrote uh, have gone out of print. This has remained in print. It's been a, uh, a good seller here at, at uh, Reasons to Believe. Um, what, I, what I appreciate is that I've been approached by various people who've said to me, hey, I'd like to translate this into another language. In 2004, it was uh, translated into uh, the Indonesian language. In 2023, it was translated into the language of Urdu, which is the national language of Pakistan. Uh, it's also spoken uh, in India. And I've also recent, just recently, and again, I don't know if, if this will follow through, but somebody has me has approached me about a translation in the the Sri Lankan language of uh, Sinhala. So mm. I I'm very excited. I mean I've seen photographs of uh, young people in Pakistan. Now now think about Pakistan for a moment. 
give you a little little stats. The top 10 countries with the most Muslims uh, in them is Indonesia, number one, and Pakistan, number two, both of them more than 200, uh, more than 250 million people who are Pakistan who are Muslim. So that book has been translated into the language that is available to uh, people in those countries. And I have I, been very encouraged that lots of young people uh, in Pakistan, again, it has uh, about 97% about Muslim, but Christians are growing. And so this has really been an exciting thing. I think that uh, one section of this book that I have always enjoyed thinking is uh, chapter eight, where I look at Jesus and I ask the question, kind of building on C.S. Lewis's Lord, Liar, Lunatic, I, uh, I propose, is Jesus a man, myth, madman, menace, mystic, Martian, or Messiah? And uh, it took me a long time to come up with all of those M words. But I, that really kind of developed my own kind of best explanation reasoning in apologetics. You know, who has the best explanation as to the life uh, of Jesus? And uh, that, so that was, that was an important kind of component and has become an important part of the way I think about apologetics. I think, I think one of the real strengths of the Christian worldview is that I think it has great explanatory power and scope. And um, yeah, I, I think that's clearly been my signature book. Uh, I had I even had a person contact me about a possible Arabic translation. So mm. again, whether these will be, whether we'll be able to get funding for that, and there's a lot involved in getting a book translated. The publisher, Baker Books, has to approve and I have to approve and but I I am greatly encouraged and I I want to say one other thing about this book uh uh Joe I finished this book in 2003 right before the holidays and uh when the book was being edited I experienced a life-threatening health crisis I was hospitalized for almost a month and um I remember the doctor telling me later, he said, somebody must be watching over you because uh, he said that the uh, mortality rate for somebody who had what I had, they later identified it as a bacterial infection called nocardia. Uh, it attacks the heart. That's why they call it nocardia. Um, my mortality rate was predicted to be 80%. Uh, I'm not good at math, but I know that's not good. Mm -hmm. uh, and out of that, I had a real difficult time. Uh, it really threw me for a loop. Uh, I remember you coming to see me, Hugh and Fuzz. Um, took me a long time to recover from that. But, you know, I, I'll say this, Joe. I, I, some people have said that before the Lord can really use you, he has to he has to test your character and that tested my character. I, uh, that was, that was a really hard time. And I wonder if uh, a lot of the influence that this book has had didn't come 
out of that context. That is, the Lord blessed a very difficult time for me. And I want to encourage people listening that, you know, you can go through a very, very difficult time and it, it doesn't seem like you understand why it happened or or anything like that. And it, it may put the brakes on your, your life, cause your family difficulties. But, you know, my my strongest answer to the problem of evil, pain, and suffering is that God has a greater good. And so I've I've often thought that the influence of this book was partly due to God doing something in my life. Yeah. And uh, also a way that you've helped people probably due to your experience is uh, that you've, you've written blog articles and I know you've been on social media and, and had people ask you and tell you that they've struggled with health crises and other things and even suicidal thoughts. And uh, you've been able to help a lot of people. Uh, I know you've written articles, I've edited them and, and people have found them very helpful. So it appears that God has used that whole experience uh, to bring about this book and people have been uh, blessed by it internationally now, but also in some of your subsequent writings. So that goes to show that uh, God is up to things and we we just aren't aware of them. I, you know, I have to tell you, Joe, and and uh, you are a, a writer and an editor yourself. Um, you know that it's not an easy process. Um, it doesn't come easy for me, and it doesn't come outright usually the first time I write it. Um, and you've been involved in helping my books to be more clear, more careful. Um, I think one of the blessings about being an author is you never know where your book's going to go. Um, you know, if you would have told me this book would be translated into Indonesian and Urdu, I wouldn't even understood that, uh, mm. how that could be possible. And, you know, you get letters from people and they say, hey, your book has made a real difference in my life, difference in the life of my children. You know, that's a small blessing to know that the Lord, the Lord can use your work. And uh, so when I... When I am writing and I'm going through challenges of trying to produce a manuscript on time, I think about those things because they encourage me that, hey, um, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit uh, is the one responsible for persons coming to believe in Jesus Christ. And uh, it's just a great thing. It's an encouraging thing to think that God may have used a book that you worked on. Hmm. That's great. Well, Ken, thank you for writing uh, these books. We have more to talk about. I don't know if you have a final comment on this uh, group of four that we've uh, talked about. Yeah, I, um, I I guess I would say that, you know, what, what's kind of interesting, um, before, uh, right after I left CRI, the Christian Research Institute, um, I kind of went into a period where I, I I called it my wilderness experience. I wasn't quite sure where I was going um, in terms of my vocation and occupation in life. I was thinking about pursuing a doctoral degree. I was also trying to earn money to pay the rent and put some food in the refrigerator. But I, I kind of felt like I wasn't quite sure where I was going. I was teaching philosophy, uh, a lot of part-time teaching work. And, you know, I, again, I was like, 
Lord, what do, what do you have for me? What's interesting, Joe, is even though that period was a, a challenging period economically and in terms of my own transition, a lot of the ideas that I later wrote about came out of that, that period of, of feeling like, I don't know what the Lord's doing in my life. Uh, I first thought about writing without a doubt and books that we'll talk about in the next program. They also came out of that period. And so I, I want to encourage our listeners that, you know, God knows what he's doing. And uh, we may not always understand the reasons why he allows pain and suffering and evil to come into our life, but he is sovereign uh, and he is working in our character. You know, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul tells us in Romans uh, chapter eight, uh, God works all things together for good. You know, these are these are things I've had to wrestle with in my life. And these are topics I've debated people from various religions and non-religions. So I want to encourage people. I hope they'll consider reading some of these books. And RTB has a lot of terrific books uh, on science, on evolution, you know, on and on. There's just, I'm surrounded by some really fine Christian thinkers who have written a lot of good content. Mm, wonderful. Well, thank you for your thoughts on books you've written, and we are going to talk about some more of them on the next podcast. So we sure hope uh, you, the listener, have benefited from this. Let us know. And by the way, on without a doubt, uh, all of those chapters are helpful. Um, uh, you break it into three parts, but part three, thinking through objections to the Christian faith, you take up a lot of these objections and do a very good job with them. And these chapters are are short and readable, but uh, they're packed with uh, punch. Uh, the, there's good analysis there. So I highly recommend it because we are in a time where people have all kinds of objections. And I think you deal with them skillfully in uh, that book. So well, thank, thank you for that. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this podcast. But let us know your comments and questions. You can reach out to Ken on X. That's at RTB underscore K samples. Get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbeam, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples, this is Joe Aguirre with the reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.